listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Only, only piece of advice Brad had to me this week was, listen, bro, don't, don't go short. Don't go short. Don't make, him look, don't make him look bad. So buckle up. There is a lot to do. And so I decided I'd go five chapters in Acts. And so that's how we, that's how we got here. So uh, where do you have to be? You don't have anywhere to be, seriously. I know we're in the South. Church folks in the South get antsy at noon. I know that. But chill out, okay? Nothing's happening this afternoon. Um, we're going to be in the book of Acts. I always knew it's still comical to me that I'm up here actually preaching or teaching or even speaking but I always knew just reading this narrative, this historical narrative in the book of Acts, specifically these first five chapters have just always stood out to me as just pretty profound and amazing of God using just ordinary dudes to launch the church. I mean, these were just regular guys, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but just what they went through and what, the way God launched the church. And so that's how we landed where we are today, I knew that, that that's something that just blows me away. We're going to fly through it, okay? And then we'll settle down real quickly in chapter 5. Um, I'll read part of that, and then we'll answer three questions at the end of it to see if um, they have any application for us. But the book of Acts, let me just tell you, it's written by the, uh, the gospel writer Luke. So Luke wrote Luke, and that's essentially a testimony to the life of Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all testimonies to, to the life of Jesus. And the book of Acts is actually a testimony to the, much of, of which Luke was actually an eyewitness to. Um, but it's a testimony to the launch of the church as it starts in Jerusalem and then it spreads or begins to spread through the teachings of Paul and the other apostles and Peter, and, 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 and it spreads throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so Luke is the, the writer of both of these things. Now, it, it gets its apostolic validity because Luke was a very tight companion of, of the apostle Paul, and so um, that's why it's in the Scriptures here. Um, so here's what we know. We know, like I just mentioned, um, Acts is written by Luke. He's a, he's a physician. He was the writer of the Gospel of Luke as well. He wasn't an eyewitness necessarily to the life of Jesus, but in, in the book, in the Gospel of Luke, he interviews eyewitnesses and reads, talks to the apostles and, and, and understands exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. Um, and, and here's what we know as well. We know that both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written to this guy who we don't really know who he is. It may just have been a close friend or companion of Luke, but his name was Theophilus. And we know a couple of things about him, that he was probably um, kind of a high-ranking official or he was uh, probably of a high social status because it, Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus when he, when he writes these letters. And what probably happened was that Theophilus charged Luke, said, Luke, you're a physician, you're a smart dude, you love research, you love going after the truth. Go find out the truth about this Jesus and see if these testimonies are, through, are true. And so that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. And then in the book of Acts, he writes the same thing um, to Theophilus to say, okay, now here's the testimony of the church. So we're in chapter 1 of the book of Acts. I'm going to fly through these chapters, but here's what we know in the first chapter, Luke is telling Theophilus, he says, hey Theophilus, here's what's going on. 
You remember my first book about the life of Jesus? Now, here's where we are. He said, the resurrected, the resurrected Christ, He's appeared over a course of 40 days. And in fact, Paul would talk about in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, he would say that, that the resurrected Jesus actually appeared to 500 men, 500 brothers at one time. And so in, Paul and Luke are both, are, they're, they're both saying that that this really happened, that, that Jesus really rose from the dead. And so Mark Dever, he's a pastor up in Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He writes this about the, or he kind of says this about the letter of Luke. He's, he said, Luke and Peter and John, the characters kind of we're going to read about in these first five chapters, these guys are, are not making their case for the re resurrection of Christ. That's not what they're doing. They're making their case. They're telling their story from the resurrection of Christ. In other words, he's saying, this happened. I mean, we got 500 dudes who saw Jesus at one time. And then we have this period of about 40 days where Christ was just appearing to, to various people. And many of these folks are still alive today. So I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not trying to write to you, Theophilus, that, that this really happened. I'm telling you it did. Now everything that, that we're going to read about is as a response from that. And so then Luke tells us in that first chapter, he says, Jesus, um, he ascends to heaven with the Father to go to the Father. But then before, he says, before you leave Jerusalem, apostles, okay, you need to stay here and the Holy Spirit will come on you. And at this time, it says the company of believers was about 120 people. This is one of the, this is one of the areas in this letter or this book when I read this, I go, really? Because here's the question I have. What happened to the 5,000 people or 5,000 men that were fed at one time? What happened to the 4,000 men that, fed at one, that Jesus fed at one time that we read about in the Gospels? What happened to the people who were spread all among the hillsides so much so that Jesus had to get into a boat to teach? What happened to those folks? It says in Mark chapter 1 that his fame was spreading all over the place. What happened to the followers? When Jesus Christ was in his, the prime of his ministry, it was very cool to follow him. People loved the miracles. They loved the works of Christ. They loved the healing. I mean, this cat turned five jugs of water into wine. Who wouldn't love him? They loved what was going on. But we get to the book of Acts, and Luke testifies to the fact when the company came together, after the ascension of Christ, there was a hundred and 20 of them. Here's what I think. And the scriptures testify to this. It says, Many will marvel at his miracles. Many will hear the good news. But few will believe. Read the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. That people will hear the news. And it will get scooped up. People will get worried and stressed. It will not have good soil to grow in. But few will believe. And that's actually the testimony of the early church. That there was 120 of them. And then finally, at the end of chapter 1, we see that because of Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, which many of you are familiar with how Jesus went on to be crucified by being betrayed by one of his disciples. And so the apostles are going to, to replace him. And so they pray to, Lord, to the Lord say, Hey, we've got two guys, both of whom are witnesses to the crucifixion and resurrection. God, we're praying to you. And then basically they play a game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe or pick a number. I'm not sure it says. But by, 
by lot. They cast lots to see by chance who, who is going to be it. And Matthias becomes the, the 12th disciple. And so we pick up in chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins with the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish harvest festival about 50 days after the Passover. And at the Pentecost, at the day of Pentecost, the promised Holy Spirit, which Jesus had just spoken about in chapter 1, falls on the believers. And they speak in tongues so that people everywhere heard the message of the gospel, began to hear the good news of Christ in their own native tongue. Now, many were hearing and believing, but others were saying, these guys must be drunk. They must be filled with much wine. And Peter said, well, that's probably not the case because it's the third hour of the day. Now, if it was the ninth hour of the day, they might be, but it's the third hour of the day. So they're not. That's not the story. He goes on and he says this. He begins to preach, boldly preach the first sermon we know of after the ascension of Christ. And for the record, here's what, when you start to read this, if you read that this week, you start to read this message. This does not appear to be the same Peter that we read about in the Gospels. The, same, the Peter that we read about in the Gospels was a very bold guy, but he was a goofball, a coward. And so the, the Holy Spirit falls on the Apostle Peter and the other apostles, in fact, all the believers, the company of 120, and they begin speaking. And Peter kind of takes the realm, takes the head as the leader of this church. And he boldly preaches the first sermon. Here's the highlights from Peter's message. Verse 21, he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In verses 38 and 39, he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You repent, you believe, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord call, God calls to himself. And Luke writes on that day that 3,000 people became believers. That's a lot in one day. So from 120 to 3,000, so now 3,120 believers. That's a massive, they don't worry about the thing, but that's a massive seating problem immediately. I mean, it just happens overnight. What are we going to do with these people? We, we get freaked out if we, we can't get a few more people. When I was in Haiti, when we were in Haiti the other, <laughs> we were in there about three weeks ago now, and we were at church one morning, and then I was at a revival one evening. They didn't, have to, they didn't have this normal, natural American spacing that we like. We like room. We like comfort. We like, I, would, I would prefer, I'm hoping, kind of like on an airplane, I am praying that no one comes and sits by. In Haiti, there, there might have been four people tight right there, and, and they would have come and sat down right in between Nathan and Lance. They were just squeezed in. And so we don't have seating problems, okay? And so the first church goes from, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So they, the first church goes to 3,000 quickly. They, they weren't fretting about anything. They were just praising the name of Jesus. And listen to how Luke describes the early church, or the early group of believers. It says this in chapter 2 of Acts. It says they had all things in common. It says they took care of those in need. He said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to praying, and to eating together. That's a beautiful picture of the early church. And when I read that, I have to ask the question, does the church in America today look like that? Let me ask a little more personal. Does Cross Point Church look like that? 
Is that what we look like as a body? Or are we caught up in worrying about little things? And I really don't have anything in particular like on my mind, kind of the punchline. No, we're worried about little things. No. Just, that's a question we need to evaluate ourselves as we grow as a church, as we do life together as a church. Is that what they did? They had all things in common. doesn't mean they had the same hobbies. It means their thing in common was unity in Christ. They took care of those in need. Is it one of those things that when we see a brother or sister, we say, oh my goodness, there's a need. Let me call the church office to tell about the need. Or do we go after the need? as believers in Christ and as part of a tribe kind of running together? That's the question I think we need to ask. Do we look like that? And it says at the end of that chapter that every day the Lord added to their number. Chapter 3, and it kind of gets into a specific little story. Now this story is, is very crucial because this is really what starts to cause the uproar in the early church. And, and so he launches into it, Luke launches into it in chapter 3, and he talks about Peter and John going to the temple to pray. Now listen, I understand that God could use anybody, anything, any situation to have launched his church. He could use any, any of us, any situation. He could use a Sunday morning. He could use a conversation that you may have at lunch or dinner or to, to, to save people for his name's sake. But he chose this situation. And Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, it says. And outside of the temple, there's a man who is lame sitting there, and he's begging for money. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that. It said he's been there, he's 40 years old, and he's been there every day. And basically, Jesus and John kind of paraphrased. They said, listen, we don't have any money. But I'll tell you what we do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The guy leaps. It talks about later in, in that chapter that he's just hanging on to Peter. He's just loving it. Here's, here's what I have to question. Why did Peter and John, I feel pretty confident. I don't know this. I feel pretty confident. But that was not the first time that Peter and John went into that temple to pray. So what made them then stop and see the guy who had been there for 40 years, lame, begging for him? What made them stop on that day? To pay attention to this, this guy. Here's what I believe. I believe that when, when the Spirit of God hits a heart of a believer, it changes everything. That we begin to see life through the lens of Christ. So no, no longer w was it just Peter and John, just regular dudes walking around and doing their ritual Jewish custom of going to the temple to pray. Now, because of the power that was in them through the Holy Spirit, they saw things differently. They saw the beggar differently. They saw the hungry guy different. They saw people's needs differently. And so this is this healing of Jesus, of this lame man, is what begins to cause great commotion in the church. Peter goes on to tell the witnesses that this miracle happened through the power of Jesus. He continues. He being Peter, he continues to preach that what was foretold by the mouth of the prophets has now been fulfilled. They were witnesses. That's what Jesus told them to be in chapter 1. Go be a witness for the gospel. And so they were witnesses. They were witnesses to what? They were witnesses to that Jesus was God. They were witnesses to the fact that he was the promised Messiah who would redeem Israel. The, the, the Jewish people knew that there was a coming Messiah. They were waiting for the coming Messiah. Peter and John and the other apostles, they were witnesses to this to say, He's here. They were witnesses to the fact that Jesus defeated sin and death by 
by rising from the grave. They were witnesses to the fact that he is the only way to salvation, of which we'll hear Paul, uh, Peter talk about in a few minutes. And so Peter's message after this healing is, let's don't make a big deal about the man who was lame and now can walk. He's saying, therefore, repent and believe in Jesus because it's Jesus who does the healing. And then we get to chapter 4. Don't think of these necessarily in sequential days. Okay, Don't think, well, that happened, and then the next day this happened. and this. I don't know the, the sequence of this, whether there were days in between or the, whether there were weeks in between or perhaps a month. It seems that all these events were pretty close together. But at the beginning of chapter 4, we read that by this time there are 5,000 believers. And there's commotion going everywhere. Imagine this. Let's say, that, let's say this is a short period of time, maybe a couple of weeks that all this is trying, that you go from 120 to 5,000. There is an uprising in the city of Jerusalem. And so a couple of things you need to remember about this. Number one is that the, the people who, who, who were in charge regarding religion was the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the well-educated guys. These were the guys who were well-studied and, and looked upon as they had all the answers. But then you have these two, or, or basically a group of 12, but we, we hear most about Peter and John, and you have these blue-collar fishermen causing an uproar in your city. And so it just says that, that it, it says in chapter 4 that, that the high priests and the leaders and the Sadducees and Pharisees and the council, they all became annoyed with these guys. I mean, who are they? Fishermen. Causing all this commotion about this supposed Messiah, Jesus. And so what, do the, what does the council do? What do the, the governing authorities, what do the high priests do? They have, have Peter and John and the apostles, they have them arrested. And this, listen to what the high priest asks Peter, he says, they go before the high priest who asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? Speaking of healing of the lame man. Because that's what's the up, that, that is what the uproar is about. That's why everybody's going crazy. They just healed this man who's been there for 40 years begging for money. They tell him, we don't have anything, but by the name of Jesus, get up and walk. It is gone. It is called. That would cause hysteria. If we pulled that off right out in front of Cross Point, that's going to make the ledger inquire. And so it's, that's what's happened here in this town. So they say, I got another one. <laughs> that's, why, that's why they're going crazy. Um, and so they ask him, by what power or by what name did you heal this guy? See if he can look them in the eye and tell them. It says in verse 8 of chapter 4, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone in this next verse, if you've been around here a little while, you'll hear me quote this verse a lot because it's powerful. And he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, he's saying to the high priest, again, fishermen, 
talking to some higher-ups. Salvation doesn't come from the law. Salvation doesn't come from your trips to the temple. Salvation doesn't come from the sacrifice. He's saying salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that's bold. So as you might imagine, the high priests and the leaders, Jewish leaders, they were very agitated because of the, they were being accused of actually killing Jesus. But they're in a dilemma. The, the dilemma is this. They have 5,000 people in this new group called the, called the Way, or these would be later known as Christians. They have 5,000 people in the city of Jerusalem supporting what the apostles have done, have done and who they are saying is God. And then they have this 40-year-old who'd been lame from birth, and he's standing there. So they're in a big-time pinch. They know if they start wearing down on these apostles, there could be a riot or chaos in the city of Jerusalem. So not knowing what to do, they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. Here's what Peter says back to them. In verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Listen, you can say that, but we're a witness to what happened. So there's nothing else we can do but talk about this. It's kind of like when Jesus said to Peter, So, so are you going to turn from me too, Peter? And Peter said, Where, where else am I going to go? There's, there's nowhere else to go. And so as the high priests tell them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, they basically said, We've got to obey God. We've got to do that. And then we get to chapter 5, which is where you're turned to. I'm going to skip. I'm not going to start reading until we get down to 17. But at chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, let me just say this. He kind of wraps up. And I know that the chapters of biblical of the Bible that you have, these, were not, these, are, these are not inspired by God, the chapter numbers. But the way it's broken up, each chapter almost in the book of Acts, almost in these five chapters ends with, and they had everything in common. And more and more people were coming. And they were of one accord. And they were giving to others that had need. I mean, things were really happening. And they grew in number. And at the end of chapter 4, it says that, that so much was going on that people were even bringing their, their people who were sick and ill out so that Peter's shadow would even fall on them. And so it even talks about, well, that's at the beginning of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, it talks about uh, Barnabas selling his land and giving all that he had to help people in need. He took everything he had, he sold it, and put it in because they were of one accord. And so then Luke throws in this story right at the beginning of chapter 5. I'm not going to, you read it this afternoon, but it's almost like he's telling Theophilus, you're not going to believe this. Check this story out. He, he's, he's like he's saying, this one couple... I mean, this was a serious launching of the new church. Listen to what happened to this one couple. Remember Barnabas? He sold all he had and he gave it to church. Well, there was this guy named Ananias and Sapphira. Well, they sold all they had too. But they didn't give it all. And so Ananias came to, to Peter and the leaders and they said, Hey, here's our money. We sold our land. And Peter looks at him and says, Is that it? And he says, yeah, that's it. Well, truthfully, Ananias had held money back. He, he didn't give all that he had. And bam, he was dead, gone. Well, his wife comes in a few minutes later, just after they had cleaned their hands from burying the husband, and they say, Sapphira, is this, is this the money? This is what he gave us. Is this what? She says, yeah, that's it. Bam, she was dead. I think, I think that this story is thrown in the middle of this 
to say that you can't be halfway in and halfway out. In Christianity, in following Christ, you can't be halfway in and halfway out. Partial obedience, like a child, raising up your children, partial obedience is disobedience. So I ask you, is there anybody like that in this room? I don't think it's about giving all your money. I think it's more of how I live oftentimes is, yeah, I want some of God, but I also want some of Reynolds. I want some of my life that I want to hold up to. I don't want to give it all to God. I mean, I'll give faithfully, but I want to give all of my life to God. I mean, I've got my career. I've got a career ladder at where I work. I mean, I'm not going to give that to God. I mean, he doesn't know about the pharmacokinetics of the products I sell, does he? I mean, I sell pills for a living. I'm not going to give that. Let me handle that. I've been to training. We do that in every area of our life. We say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give this to God and I'll hold on to this area. But he's making a point. I think Luke is saying, listen, this wasn't a game. You were in or you were out. And then it goes on to talk about where Peter, people were bringing their friends and loved ones out to Peter for his shadow to cast upon them. Now let's start reading. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to make a couple of points in the middle of it, and then I'm going to answer three questions, and then we're out of here. This is the launch of the early church. Put yourself in the story. Where would you be in the story? Would you be with the disciples? Would you be with the, with the high priests and the religious folks? Where would you be? But imagine this. So in verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, understanding they just released Peter and John and some of the other apostles. They just released them, told them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so they've gone back out, and commotion has continued on, and here's what happens. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And so in other words, he's, they're saying they didn't do what they told them to do. They didn't go out and keep their mouth shut. They continued on. They were healing in the name of Jesus. They were preaching of the, the, the Messiah that had come. And so, because of jealousy, they were the educated ones, because of jealousy, they put him in prison, that someone was getting more attention to them. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the pe people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. That is, to me, that is incredible courage. Because if I've been warned once, twice, three times not to do this, and I've been in jail, my reputation is on the line. I'm worried about what my mother would think. If, if they told me to disobey these guys, I'm worried about my reputation. Not these guys. They're back in the temple preaching. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the... All of, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. In other words, there's been enough chaos. What, what's going to happen now? 
And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us? Listen to this answer. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our forefathers, God of our fathers, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So see the boldness in these guys? Again, we're going to talk about Peter in just a second, but this guy goes from coward to courageous. I mean, he's looking these educated guys in the eye saying, you can tell me what to do, but I'm going to obey God rather than you. And then we hear a little dialogue, which could be in this, there's a verse in here that's one of the wisest verses in Scripture, I believe. And I'll point it out. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Can you imagine being accused of what they had been accused of? But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all, all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Here it is, right here. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man... It will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. This dude, Gamaliel, he was sharp. He said, listen, if this thing's of God, if it's of God, you can't stop it. You can beat these guys. You can put them in prison. You can kill them. But you, you can't stop it. And so what they do, they took his advice. And when they had called the, the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching, preaching Jesus as a Christ. You know, when we heard Gamaliel speak, and he said, it doesn't matter. God does what he wants. I think about Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God could have used Peter and John, the other apostles. He could use, he could use anybody in this room. He can establish his kingdom however he wants to, but he chooses to do it through these blue-collar, regular dudes who were, as we read about in the Gospels, were scared to death, scared of their shadow, had no courage. 
And so I want to ask three questions as we, as we kind of bring this story, this biblical history narrative together. Question number one, what caused the radical transformation in these men, particularly Peter and John? What, what caused them to be transformed from cowards to courageous? Remember Peter? It was, it was Peter who, after Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus said to him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It was Peter who, when told to stay awake and pray while they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter who we read about that falls asleep on Jesus. Remember, Peter, it was Peter who cowers before a little girl when she asked him, Oh, you know that guy, Jesus. You're with him, right? He says, don't even know him. That's the Peter. So what caused Peter to go from a coward before people to courageous before people? What causes this transformation? Remember John, if you've read about him in the Gospels, one of John's main questions he had to Jesus when he got him alone, he said, in the kingdom of heaven, God, what about me? Where, where am I going to be seated? That was John's priority. So what happened to him that caused this transformation to not worry as much about himself and to worry more about the gospel. Here's how they're preaching now. Acts 2.28. I'm not sure if I gave you these, Jenny. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 3.19. This is the courageous Peter. This is the courageous John. Acts chapter 3, verses 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 4. Verse 10, by whose name did we do this? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Acts 4, verse 12, I've already read this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So where did this power come from? Well, we read about it in the first chapter of Acts. It says, Acts 1.8, it says, but you, but you followers of Christ will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So th that explains how these men are transformed, how they go from being cowards to courageous, how, where they got their boldness from. They received power from the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in here, do you realize, I don't think about this that often if I could be honest with you, do you realize that you have the same power? There's not a varsity, varsity level Christianity that we're waiting for this power. It said, Peter says it over and over in these first few chapters. It says, you believe and you receive this Holy Spirit. It will come upon you and your family and your children. So believer, do you realize that you have the power? The same power that caused these men to stand up before educated Religious leaders, you have that power. Listen to what Peter says in his second letter, the second Peter. Again, Peter is writing in that letter. He's writing to Christians who were dispersed all across the Roman Empire. And he's telling them that, that, that listen, you're going to be persecuted, but you have all you need to survive this. He says this in second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them 
you may become partakers of this divine nature. You have the power. We have the power to live a life for Christ as bold as we read about these early church planners. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Philippians in chapter 2 when he tells them, he says, Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you. It's the power of this Spirit of God that works in you to will and to work for His good purpose. You have the power. So by putting your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ for your right standing before God, you have been made righteous in the sight of God and have also been given the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to pursue the very righteousness that He's given you. Do you realize that's what happens when you put your faith and hope and trust in Christ? That, that God gives you the righteousness of God and He takes your sin from you. If you're not a believer in here, or maybe you have questions, or maybe you have doubts, or maybe you're just not sure, you know some Christians who are, who are really fired up, and you just really can't get there, can I first commend you to, on your honesty to say it's good to be honest? If you have doubts, or if you don't believe, it's good to say that, to confess that. But if it's you, if you're in this room, and there's four or five hundred people in here, if you're in this room, and you're not a believer, may I explain to you the gospel? It's what Peter and John are testifying about in the first five chapters of Acts. Understand this, that the story of the Bible is this. God created all things. And at the pinnacle of His creation, He creates man and woman. He creates humanity. And in our rebellion against God, what the Bible refers to is sin, we lose our right standing before God. He created things perfect in the garden. But because of our rebellion against God that started with Adam and continues to all of us today. The scriptures tell us that no one is righteous. No, not one. We've all turned. We're all like sheep who have gone astray. We've all turned from God. And because God is just and righteous, our sin and rebellion against Him must be punished. There must be payment. And the entire Old Testament is a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of this coming Messiah who will make the full payment for our sin. And the Bible testifies that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, Jesus, to come and live the perfect life and store up righteousness for Himself on our behalf. And so we see in the Old Testament that the way sin was paid for was by a sacrifice that went over and over and over. You had to do it on the Day of Atonement again and again and again. But the prophets testified that there will come a time when there will be one payment for the sin of the people. He, he is the coming Messiah. That's what Peter and John are talking about. The coming Messiah has come. And the Scriptures testify that Jesus willingly lays down His life in our place as the full payment for our disobedience, satisfying the wrath of God. And He came back to life, fully defeat, defeating sin and death. So how do you become a Christian? God gives you faith to believe what I just told you, that Jesus has paid the penalty for all of us. God allows you to turn from your sin and believe and trust in Jesus. God gives you a new heart. Galatians 
says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that if, it, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you're not a believer, what happens if you don't do this? What happens if you don't turn and repent? Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as the payment for your rebellion against God. What happens if you don't do this? I'm going to be very honest. This is not my thoughts. These are Scripture's thoughts. It's very sobering. John, John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is not a scare tactic for you to see if we can get you in an emotional spot and say, oh, I need to do that. God calls people to himself. God allows you to see your sin and rebellion against him. Listen, I've got a master's degree in man-pleasing. I like everybody to be happy. I want most people to like me. And so if I wanted most people to like me, I would not sit here and read that scripture that says that if you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. The scriptures are clear. God calls people to himself. If you feel him calling, respond by exercising faith. All of that's a gift of God. Question number one was what causes transformation. Question number two, what was their life purpose? Peter and John and the other apostles will fly through this. What was their life purpose? It was the good news of the gospel. It was Jesus. He was the starting point and the ending point. He was the focus of everything in their life. He was all that mattered. Everything, everything in their life seemed to be fact, tied to the fact that the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah had been fulfilled in Jesus. They understood that because of the cross and because of the resurrection, they now have a right standing before God. Therefore, they were giving their entire life to becoming more and more like Him. Romans 8 tells us that, that they, believers, all of us, are being conformed into the likeness of the Son, Jesus. That's what, that's what their life purpose was. That's the life purpose of a believer, to be conformed to the likeness of a son, to become more and more like him. Oh, we'll never get there. It wasn't to make a great name for themselves. But it could have been for these guys. Peter was healing people. They wanted to put people in his shadow just so that they could be healed. We read about, but that was, that was 180 degrees from where their focus was. Their focus was Jesus. In fact, we'll read in later in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is going to preach to Cornelius, a Gentile, and when he gets there, it's a long story, but when he gets there, Cornelius falls down at the feet of Peter and, and worships him. And Peter says, dude, you've got to get up. I'm just a dude like you're just a dude. It's Jesus that we're worshiping. So if anybody had a right to make a name for themselves, it was these apostles who were, who were healing people. They're launching churches. They're going from town to town, and good things are happening. How much of our life in... America is spent trying to make a name for ourselves. Look at TV. Look at ma magazines. Look at corporate America. You can be the idol. You can, be, you can dance like the star. You can have your own show. You can make your name great. You can have a corporate ladder and you can climb it. You deserve it. You can do it. That's, that's what we're fed with all the time. Make your name great. Make your name great. 
If you hang in through week after week after week after week and you don't get cut off, you may be the guy. You may be the one. But that wasn't what the apostles were doing. Here's what Paul said to the Philippians, what his life purpose was in chapter 10. It says, I want to know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, my main goal is to try to be more and more like Christ. I'm not there. But when I wake up this morning, my purpose is to live for the glory of God and tell his story about how he saved us through his name, Jesus. Paul goes on and says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the role of the Christian, the role of these men, our role as believers, the role of the Christian is to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is good news, and news must be shared. The other role of the Christian is to be continually transformed into into the likeness of Jesus. This is a lifelong journey of which you never actually get there. But that's our purpose. This is what we mean by saying live for the glory of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, So whatever you're doing, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you go work a sales job tomorrow or whether you go work at the bank, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're a school teacher, whether you're, you're in the military or whether you're in the classroom tomorrow, whatever you, whether you're looking at Facebook this afternoon or whether you're going to exercise or whether you're taking a nap, Do it all for the glory of God. The extreme opposite of that would be to do it all for the glory of yourself. And so we know, question two, what was their purpose? Their purpose was to do everything for the glory of God. And the final question, what price did the apostles have to pay? What was the cost to do what they did in these five chapters that we read about and beyond that launches the early Christian church? Well, they were warned of what the cost would be. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, chapter 11, uh, Matthew 5, verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, blessings when you get reviled and persecuted for my sake. He says in Matthew 10, 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 16-18. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For that, does this sound familiar? For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And it says later in verse 22. It says, and you will be hated for my, name, for my name's sake. And then the Lord says to Paul, actually he says to Ananias, a different Ananias, in Acts chapter 9, he says, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And as I mentioned earlier, the entire book of 1 Peter is Peter writing to the Christians saying, you're going to suffer persecution as a follower of Christ. 
Now, it may not be threat of death or hanging or being burned alive here in America today, but it could be ridicule, it could be gossip, it could be you being left out of the group. But you will be persecuted as a follower of Christ. Jesus warned these, and it's almost like at the end of chapter 5 when, 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 when Peter and John were coming out. It's one of my favorite verses. They had just been flogged. We read real quickly, and they beat him. They were flogged in the synagogue for the sake of Christ, and they came out. Yes, we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In other words, what Jesus told was going to happen just happened. This is happening. It's for real. And so back to one of the first questions I asked early in the message. What happened to all the followers? Was the cost too high for the 5,000, for the 4,000, for the hillside of people? What happened to all the followers? The question we must ask ourselves is, am I willing as a follower of Christ to submit everything to the Lordship of Christ? I'll read this and we'll wrap it up. Luke wrote in his gospel in chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. I think that's more than 120. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock Mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if he's not, while the other is yet, great, yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... In other words, if you don't have what it takes, don't get in this. Don't build it. If you don't have what it takes to win this battle, don't go. And so he wraps it up saying, So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. More sobering words. Does that mean we have to give up everything? Does that mean we have to hate our family? That we have to sell all that we have and give it? Does that mean we have to quit our jobs? I don't think Jesus was saying that you cannot have a wife or a husband or you cannot love your parents or your children. And the reason I'm sure he wasn't saying this is because the Bible speaks often about how you should love and treat these people. He's saying this. He's saying nothing comes before me. Nothing. Nothing comes before Not your family. Not your friends. Not your jobs. Not your career. Not your status. Not your reputation. Nothing comes before me. Which is what we saw in the life of the apostles as they launched the church. And so the questions we have to ask ourselves is have you been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Christian, are you using the power that God has given you to live boldly for Him? 
Question two, what is your life purpose? We saw what the life purpose of the apostles. Is it to glorify God or is it to glorify yourself? And finally, have you surrendered everything? Or are you like Ananias and Sapphira who want to give a little bit but really want to hold on? Can I confess, that's how I live my life oftentimes. God, I'll call you when I need you. I'll call you when things get tough. I'll call you when I'm in a desperate situation. I'll call you, God, when I need to prepare a sermon. But after that, I'm okay. That's not what we see in the life of the early apostles. The good news is that there's grace in all of that. The Apostle Paul said, hey, I do what I don't want to do, and I do the things that I know I shouldn't. And I can't even do the things that I know that I'm supposed to be doing. And there's grace in all of that. There's grace to repent and believe continually before our Savior because of what He's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we love You and are so thankful for men like Peter and John and the other apostles who were very bold, who, who by Your power working in them stood up before men and boldly proclaimed that there is salvation in no other name. So, Lord, would you help us to be men and women like that? Would you help us by your enabling grace, by your power, by the power of your Spirit working in us? Would you, Lord, help us to be more and more like you? Lord, and for the person who has not confessed that you are the Savior of the world, that you are the coming Messiah, that you have come and that you paid for our sin on the cross and yet you rose in victory over sin and death and that in you we have new life and we have our hope Lord for that believer would you allow them to see their sin and their rebellion against you and Lord would you work in them just to cause humility in their heart and I know that's tough in America Lord because we're taught that we can do all things and we can be all things. But, Lord, we can't. But you can. And so, Lord, would you change hearts? Would you help us to walk after you with more boldness and more courage? Would you continue daily to transform us and conform us into the likeness of Jesus? Do what only you can do. Not by the power of man, but by your power. And we pray this in the great name of our Savior, the Messiah, the King, Jesus.